Hi, I'm Kevin Doolan, Director of Innovation in the Walton Institute, and you're listening to the Innovation Insight Podcast. This podcast is presented by Dr. Joseph Jornet, who is part of a series of international guest webinars we hosted here in the Walton Institute. The focus of the podcast is around genomic interfaces. We hope you find it interesting. Joseph Michael Jornet is an associate professor at Northeastern University. He completed his bachelor's and master's from UPC and PhD in Georgia Tech. His, his main area is in actually wireless communication. Um, his expertise is largely in terahertz communication. That's where he really built a lot of name in that area. But on top of that, he's also been doing work on implantable devices, nanoplasmonic min- miniature devices that can actually emit um, signals in the terahertz as well as in the visible light. And we're going to see one of that work here using that to actually control neurons. And um, he's currently, as I mentioned just now, um, in the Department of Electro and Computer Engineering at Northeastern, but he also has his own lab, the Ultra Broadband Nano Networking Lab. And he's a member of the Wireless Institute, Institute for Wireless Internet of Things at Northeastern. So over to you, Joseph. Thank you very much for giving the presentation today. Thank you very much, Sassy, and thank you everyone for staying here, joining a webinar in, in this time of living online. So indeed, uh, you may have seen some of our works on terahertz, but today I'm actually really happy that Sassy uh, invited and asked me to, to present some of the work that we don't often talk about, but I think that you're going to be excited about. And in particular, we're talking about optogenomic interfaces. Let's just start from the very beginning. So. We all know that nanotechnologies, at the end of the day, are providing us nothing but a a new set of tools to control matter at the atomic and molecular scale. At this scale, new nanomaterials and nanostructures offer us new properties that we can leverage in different ways. Among others, we can create new type of devices with unique capabilities. There are, for example, you can use nanomaterials for anything from batteries to processors to memories. But today, let's focus on one specific application, which is in the field of nanosensors and nanoactuators. In this paradigm, nanosensors and nanoactuators have been actually already demonstrated. If you go to Google right now, you will find literally hundreds of thousands of papers utilizing uh, groups presenting different technologies being utilized for sensing and actuating on different elements, perhaps 80% of them on sensing and actuating biological systems. For example, we can utilize nanosensors to analyze biomarkers in the blood and detect different types of diseases. Actually, I'll, I'll present it in the next two slides, we'll talk about cancer monitoring, but we could also utilize that for infectious diseases like COVID-19. Another application beyond sensing, it's actually actuation. And indeed, people have demonstrated how you can activate or inhibit neuronal responses, as well as activity in other cells by utilizing new type of light-based nanoactuators. Let's go step by step. This is, for example, a picture of a screenshot of how blood would look like in the presence of uh, cancer cells. It can be cancer cells in the blood themselves or can be cancer cells in any other part of the body, but of course it's irrigated by blood. So eventually they will release in the blood some specific cancer biomarkers. So in this picture, what you have is a, you know artistic representation of blood with a cancer cell releasing different type of cancer biomarkers. Think of cancer biomarkers as proteins or unique structures 
that you will find in the blood only if you have those cancer cells. Those cells eventually when they degrade, they also release DNA. DNA that if it's acquired or injected into other cells will again make them cancerous. So in the past, when we were thinking of cancer, the way to treat it was, well, you, you knew that you had cancer by the time that a tumor was diagnosed, which probably means it was too late because it was something that started with a single cell going crazy. It eventually became a, a bunch of cells coordinatedly going crazy and creating a tumor among others. The trend has evolved and today, instead of trying to identify tumors, we would like to identify those biomarkers or even those DNA traces in the blood before this becomes uh, into a tumor. How is this happening right now? Well, right now, this, I mean, this is the, the field of nanobiosensing. And today, those 100%, I mean, all those hundreds of thousands of papers that I was mentioning before, I would say that the majority talk about the utilization of nanoparticles or nanopattern microsurfaces that have been chemically treated to react to be sensitive only to some specific biomarkers. In other words, we can create tiny structures that then we can utilize, utilize like in a radar setup. And by chemically treating them, we can make the response of those molecules change when they are counter those biomarkers. That's something that has been developed. There is tons of research on nanoparticles. That's great. Right now, the way in which you, you operate the system, as I said, it looks like a radar. So you need to shine an optical signal, and then you need to measure that optical signal back. And right now, here on your left, you see the implant. On your right, you see how a traditional nanobiosensing system looks like. And sure, that's available to some labs, but that's actually a little bit far from something that anyone uh, could utilize or any lab or in any country could utilize. So actually it was already a few years ago when we start talking uh, about wearable nanobiosensing networks. The idea here, our vision was that instead of relying on having this external macro large device measure what's happening in your blood, could we actually take everything to a much smaller scale. So for example, today, yes, implants were already demonstrated or tiny surfaces that were nanofunctionalized were already demonstrated. And we could treat them with different type of molecules to make them reactive. But then the majority of experiments were instead of having this in the body, you would have this outside the body and just take a blood sample and put it on. We said, could we do something different? Well, we could have this under your skin and under your skin means two, three, four millimeters deep under your skin. So Honestly, that's not much deep. And the idea is that this very small thing, hundreds of micrometers, would be able to interact with an external device. That would be, for example, a smart wristband in which an array of lasers and an array of detectors could be utilized to excite and measure the response of this. Eventually, this would be connected to a cell phone where information will be taken. So these that started like a vision eventually become a large NSF project with industry partners and demonstrating uh, that, that this works. So in the last three years, we have been busy working on how to make the implant. How can you make this tiny device that you will have under your skin and that will react only in our case to lung cancer biomarkers. So for that, we work closely with uh, medical doctors as well as biomedical engineers who can not only design the implant, that's pure, pure ECE, but who can only biofunctionalize it. 
We are working on integrating miniature lasers and detectors on a grease band. And we will talk about that also soon in the next few slides. And we are also making the required signal processing to go through all the system. That's fine. That's sensing. But today we are not talking about sensing. Actually, today we're talking about something even more exciting, which is control. So let's talk about the other application that I would like to highlight about nanosensors and nanoactuators. Let's in fact talk about nanoactuators now. I believe that uh, many of you are familiar with how neuronal activity, neuronal networks, ultimately the brain works. You have many ongoing processes, but let me remind at the end of the day, neuronal networks, your brain is nothing but a large, a huge collection of neurons, neurons that communicate. And it is the problems in the communication problems, the ones that lead to neurodevelopmental as well as neurodegenerative diseases. Neurons communicate by exchanging chemical signals, action potential signals, which are nothing but fluxes of ions, usually calcium ions. Fine. In this context, now keep this in mind. There are many groups working you know, on the idea of how to interface neurons and machines. And usually we don't call them neurons. Usually people are working on brain-machine interfaces. And there are different ways to do that. You could think of electrical brain-machine interfaces. The key idea here is that you use electrodes to measure the fluctuations in electrical charge because these ions, remember, when we talk about communication between neurons being based on ions, it means that they are molecules that have electrical charge. So if there is a fluctuation of electrical charge, who better than an electrical engineer using electrodes to measure that signal? So yes, that's one of the approaches. And when you think of electrical brain-machine interfaces, probably the picture that comes to your mind is this person on the right wearing a helmet with tons of electrodes that, yes, can measure the brain activity, but, and they are non-invasive, which is great, but they do that with very coarse resolution. So in other words, with electrodes, it's very difficult to measure single neural responses. We can still measure brain activity and look at the different regions in the brain, but not go individually. Much progress is happening. And for example, if you look at the state of the art today, there are several groups working on micro-electrode arrays. So arrays of tiny electrons, electrodes that could provide you resolutions in the order of maybe one electrode every two, three neurons. That's getting good. But still, we're talking about you know, being able to do many things but not everything that we would like to do if we were able to go neuron by neuron. If instead of going electrical, uh, we look into an alternative, we can actually utilize light. And it was almost 20 years ago when it was demonstrated that we can make neurons sensitive to light. Let's step back one second. Neurons in our body are not, I mean, first of all, we are all bright people, but we are not emitting light and we are usually not reacting to light. Of course, I say usually because I'm talking about neurons in your brain. Of course, there are cells in our body that react to light, and I'm talking about your eyes. But what we're saying here is that you could do something to neurons. In particular, you could genetically modify them. More than modify them, I would say you could add an extra piece of DNA in neurons to make them sensitive to light. And by sensitive to light, it means that then when they are sensitive, you can utilize light to control their activity. So that's what, that's what we believe is at the basis of optical brain-machine interfaces. And 
very, I mean, the majority of works that you can find out there are super invasive. In other words, in order to get to the brain, people have literally, I mean, drilled some holes in the skull and utilize optical fibers to inject the light in the brain. Well, that's a little bit scary, uh, but it has been done. So it was a few years back when with discussions actually with uh, Sassy, your colleague, as well as Steve, we thought, look, we can do something actually different, no? I mean, aren't we communications people? Uh, yes, we are. We're wireless communications and networking people, which, you know, like to do exotic applications. So as wireless communication people, couldn't we make this paradigm fully wireless? And this is how we came up with the idea of wireless optogenetic nano networks. The idea is the following. Yes, I want to shine neurons with light one at a time. And as, we, and as you will see in the next few slides, we can do that with current technologies or with the state-of-the-art technologies. But in order to do that, what will have to happen? Well, we'll have to have those very small actuators inside the brain. And you will say, oh, how are you going to do that? Well, there are different approaches. Yes, one of them might be invasive, which is you may have to drill a tiny hole in someone's skull. Fine. Uh, again, this sounds more as scary as it is. The other thing is that this would not be the only way. And for example, two years ago, DARPA here in the US was explicitly asking for this type of technology. And when they said, let's envision that you could deploy those nano devices in the brain, not through surgery, but through actual uh, particle-based na nasal injection. Or in other words, you could uh, sniff <laughs> nanomachines. And again, this is not uh, a crazy thing. Well, it is crazy. It comes from DARPA, but it was not that bad after all. Then how do we control and we power those devices? Well, in that case, we would need to utilize a signal that, can, that could go through the skull easily. We are not transparent, so optical signals will not go well through our skull. So how are we going to get the signals in? Well, we could use a signal that does go well, which are actually ultrasounds. And we could use those ultrasounds not only to control the device, but also to power it. Ultimately, we can think of this platform, again, trying to bridge something inside the body with something outside the body, ultimately controlled by a smarter device and perhaps a user. And I say perhaps because eventually we're going to be replaced by artificial intelligence too. So we're fine to control this. Okay, this is a vision. How can this vision happen? And why do we need this vision? Let's go step by step. Let's try to answer these questions one at a time. First of all, I will need a very small device that is able to shine light at specific wavelength. We'll talk about that in, in a couple of slides. Uh, and all being self-contained. Well, today we have access through micrometric lasers or lasers whose diameter uh, is in the order of just a few micrometers. For example, this is the work of one of my colleagues and collaborators, Dr. Liang Feng, who used to be at Buffalo where I was before moving to Northeastern, now he's at UPenn and with whom we are closely working on different of these optical aspects. So today you can make very, very small lasers. Again, this is an actual photograph or micrograph of a micro ring cavity laser which is a device that again, 10 micrometers, less than 10 micrometers in diameter can emit light. 
This is actually great. This is actually a science paper that he had in 2014. And this is still as of today, the smallest laser that has been shown. Of course, he has extended this work by not utilizing this laser only on and off, but also being able to operate it in different ways. And as well as, as actually we may find out later today, using different type of modulations. So yes, we can do these very small lasers. What else do we need? Well, uh, you may have a very small laser or you will have an okay laser, but then you try to control the radiation from that laser. In other words, think in the following way. When we are at radio waves, microwaves, millimeter wave, terahertz waves, if you ask me, what do we have? We have a signal source and then we have an antenna that will help us emit that signal into the space whether it's omnidirectionally or whether it's directionally by beamforming. When we go to optical systems, if you ever took a class on optics, we usually end up talking by lasers and LEDs and then photodetectors on the other side. We traditionally don't talk about antennas. And why don't we talk about antennas? Well, is there anything in the physics that would fail? No, actually, let's just take a second. If we go to the fundamentals of antenna theory, we know that at the end of the day, if we need to make a resonant antenna, we need that antenna to be in the order of half a wavelength. What's the wavelength at optical frequencies? Well, at visible, it's hundreds of uh, nanometers. So what does it mean to make an optical antenna or an antenna for optical signals? Well, it means that you have to make an antenna whose largest dimension is on the order of hundreds of nanometers. Well, that's really small. And traditionally, we couldn't do that. Again, the largest dimension, hundreds of nanometers, which means something like the gap is going to be tens of nanometers. But didn't we just say that nanotechnologies are nothing but tools that allow us to do things? Well, those are the type of tools that we can utilize to make optical nano antennas. It's not that then we directly say, oh, so we have all the theory. Well, we need to be a little bit careful because when we talk about traditional antennas in, for radio waves, microwave, even terahertz band, I would say that normally we assume that we are dealing with perfect electric conductors or ideal metals. When you go to optical frequencies, things happen so fast that even the best metals may not be able to provide what you need to assume that you have a perfect electric conductor. So we need to revisit optical antennas uh, theory. I mean, the fundamental antenna theory a little bit to accommodate for these non-idealities. But again, today we can make these very small antennas. As I said at the beginning, we can have one laser and one antenna, but well, how about being able to further control the radiation and for example, coming up with beamforming arrays. So the idea is the following. Once again, we can look at several recent works aimed at making on chip, so super small, super compact arrays, either of lasers or of antennas or lasers and antennas. And as of today, we have demonstrated, or actually there are several groups that are working in this idea, which is that we can do beamforming with optical signals. Look, everyone working on 5G, 6G, including ourselves, we're looking you know, into different antenna array technologies, different way of doing beamforming, maybe single beam, multi-beam, maxifying the signal, minimizing the signal. Well, many of those things that we are developing can also be utilized when dealing with optical signals with the advantage that you're doing that with extremely small structures. And in our case, this type of structures will allow, for example, to point to one cell or to another. So we will be able to steer light 
in the same way we're stealing radio waves, microwaves, terahertz signals. Okay, what else will happen for all these systems to work? Well, look, you can, if you want, you, I mean, if you're willing and you, and you are really spending the time, you will be able to have these laser arrays or antenna arrays, and you will be able to shine very narrow beams targeting a specific neurons, if that's what you want. But let's not forget that there is something between where you are, your nano device implanted inside the body, and the neuron that you might be targeting. Our neurons are not living in vacuum, actually, our neurons are living in a network. So there are going to be things that will affect our signal propagation. And again, this is some work that we did with Steve, as well as Sassy, and our collaborators uh, here, I mean, still in Buffalo, we uh, used to say that it was in Buffalo, so still in Buffalo, working on very precise modeling of light propagation through neurons and neuronal tissues. Of course, as I said at the beginning, we are not transparent. So optical signals do propagate, but do not propagate too well through the body. They suffer from spreading. In other words, the beam that you are emitting will diverge. We suffer from absorption. Part of the energy of the signal leads to vibrations and eventually thermal energy or noise inside the body. But another problem that we have at optical frequencies is that the things that we have in our medium, meaning other cells, are comparable in size to our wavelength. So actually, they are going to create multi-path propagation. They are going to create different forms of a scattering. So once again, all the things that you're modeling for your millimeter wave and your terahertz networks, now you can just scale them with wavelength. And you're going to see that, uh, well, the, many of the things you know about how to compute a multi-path channel model, the delay spread, the coherent bandwidth, the coherence time, all, all those things happen inside your body and happen at a very small scale when you go to optics. The good news, however, is that not everything is bad. And for example, one of the interesting things that we experimentally demonstrated in this uh, paper down here is that actually there are elements in the neuron nucleus that will help us focus the signals. Actually, the nucleoli in the, in the, neuron, in the neuron nucleus can actually act as an optical lens. And this is something that through theory, we were able to demonstrate and to, to think of, and you know, when you have some numerical results and you see that the light after a neuron is stronger than the light on the neuron, you say something's wrong till you realize that the theory is right, your simulation is right. So then you go to the lab and you test that. And what we show, for example, here in these pictures is that this is a snapshot of a living neuron and we can see these dark spots. These are the nucleoli, fine. We can see that this is when we shine the light and we focus our microscope on top of a neuron and we see, okay, these are dark spots, fine. If we look behind those dark spots, so we focus after the plane of the neuron, we can see that, well, here they don't seem as dark as before. And actually, if we go a little bit uh, farther, we can see that what seemed to be a dark spot, it's actually a, a very bright light spot. So what's happening is that, again, there are, based on the properties of materials, nothing, nothing exaggerated, nothing strange, nothing that traditional electromagnetic theory would have predicted if we had known up front what are the electromagnetic properties of these, uh, of the different elements in the cell. So the bottom line here is that, yes, 
the propagation of light in the body is not straightforward and it's not necessarily always good, but there are a few cases in which actually it may help us. So with this in mind, sorry, with this in mind, let's just talk about experiments, which I think that that's what you really want to see. I'm going to show next a few collection of experiments. We will start talking about optogenetics, or in other words, light-based control of cell-to-cell -cell interactions. When I said at the beginning that there are electrical and optical brain-machine interfaces, and we jump to optogenetics, up to the optical path, we, we didn't emphasize it, but actually I would say 99% of the optogenetic experiments that you can find published deal with controlling the propagation of calcium ions between neurons. So strictly speaking, what we are controlling is the communications or the interactions between cells. That's why the, opto the, the term optogenetics can be a little bit confusing. And sometimes we like to refer to this as optoneuronal. So the use of light to control neuronal communications or neuronal systems. Then later on, we'll talk about optogenomics. We'll get there. So first experiment, I've been talking about this optogenetics. How does it look like? Okay, the first thing that we did in our group was, okay, let's try to reproduce the existing work and let's see if indeed we can use nano devices to control the activity between neurons, the interactions, the communication between neurons. In our case, we work with human neural progenitor cells. So cells that are or will become neurons. And what we do in those cells is we activate the sodium channel and induce the flow of calcium ions. How do we do that? Well, we grow those cells in the lab. That's with my collaborator in Buffalo, Dr. Michal Stachowiak. We grow the cells in the lab. We transfect them. What does it mean to transfect a neuron or to transfect a cell? It means that we inject new DNA. So actually we add an extra functionality. And which functionality we add? So we add the channel rhodopsin, which is the protein that makes the neuron light sensitive. And we also add a couple of fluorescent proteins, a green one and a red one. The green one is to know that the channel rhodopsin has been excited. The red one will shine if there is calcium flow. So we add a controller, the channel rhodopsin, and we add two sensors or two indicators, a green protein and a red protein. Fine, what do we do to this system? Then we shine it with blue light. And what will happen if everything goes as planned? The blue light will trigger this channel rhodopsin and as a result, there will be calcium ions flowing to other neurons. So we will see, we will activate the red fluorescent protein. Fine, how do we do that? Well. We have shown that, you know, we, we demonstrated some of those extremely small lasers, but for these experiments, we were, you know, not directly having those lasers with the neuron. So what we did was to take a slightly lower risk approach. So we took a conventional blue light laser, by the way, four uh, 88 nanometers is blue light lasers. And what we did was to actually black it out. So cover the emitting zone and make two tiny apertures, which we designed as a slot antennas. You can think of a slot antennas. So we could see the radiation of light only through those windows and in the, in the way we thought. That's what we did. Then we also created a 3D printing system. As, I mean, we 3D printed a system to hold this laser very close to our neurons in the dish, but 
far enough to not short circuit the, the, the laser. So with that, what we did is that indeed, when we shine our blue light, we were able to see red spots in where we, when, where we were exciting our neurons. So again, we use this device with two openings and we were able to individually target neurons to, uh, to emit the calcium ions or not. What is the difference with the related work? Well, traditionally people working on optogenetics, they have a cell culture and they use a large laser or even a laser array to trigger the same response everywhere. So what was the first contribution? We don't want to trigger the same response everywhere. We instead want to demonstrate that we can trigger neurons one at a time. In this case, two at a time. Fine. So there is a contribution in this experiment, which is like we can individually trigger neurons and then we could map the propagation through time, how those calcium ions evolve. Because look, if you trigger all the neurons at the same time, you get the same response everywhere. If you trigger one place only, you can see the connectivity of the network. And that's important because as I said at the beginning, at the basis of neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental diseases, there are connectivity problems. One thing, however, so yes, we have used this channel rhodopsin to trigger uh, calcium ion, the fluxes of calcium ions. Fine. Is there anything else that we are triggering? And again, this question didn't come from me, an engineer. This came from my colleague, the neuroscientist, Dr. Stachowiak, who said, um, look, uh, my, my feeling is that thinking the following way, neurons will allow these calcium ions to flow, right? Because we are forcing them to release them, to open the gate, right? Open the gate, the calcium ions can go. This is a stressful process for the cell. I'm pretty sure we're doing something else. So what did we do? Well, we actually explore if the continuous uh, operation of this blue light laser and the triggering of the channel rhodopsin, this CHR2, was creating any, the expression of any other genes in the network. So what did we do in our second experiment? Well, we did the same. We, we wanted to analyze the impact of blue light, but in this case, on two families of genes. The CFOS, which is an early response gene, and the FGFR1, about which I will talk in a couple of slides. The idea was the same. We take our cells, we transfect them with the same channel rhodopsin and green fluorescent protein plasmid. And then what we do is, uh, some of the cells are tagged with this. Uh, the control cells, in other words, we have eight chambers. So four chambers have the channel rhodopsin, four chambers have an element that we know should not react to blue light. So this is to add some control in our system. And what we do then is we shine them with light following a different pattern. So instead of just a pulse and we see the response, we pulse it, you know, every two, five, every two and a half minutes, for 25 minutes. Then we let them sit for 90 minutes. And then we go and do, uh, we, we check if CFOS or FGFR1 have been expressed. And what do we see? We see that for the systems here what we have here what we have is the following what we see is that indeed light is not only opening and closing the gates for calcium ions to flow light this channel rhodopsin is actually impacting both this CFOS uh, gene and this is what we see here this is a control culture that we have not illuminated with light and a control culture that we have illuminated with light okay and this here is the system in which we have not added the channel rhodopsin, which we don't illuminate or we illuminate. 
And we can see that indeed this gene is expressed after 1.5 hours. So our light is not just controlling calcium ions, we are controlling something on the genome. Fine. The same happens, perhaps more interestingly, with this FGFR1. It takes a little bit more of time, but eventually those cells that have been transfected with the channel rhodopsin will eventually show activity when it comes to this gene after four hours, after some long time, whereas the control culture doesn't show anything. Fine. Why should we care about this, Joseph? Why are we talking about this? Well, let's just think for a second. We have just shown that we can use light to control genes, or in other words, to control the genome. What is the genome? Well, the genome is the source code of cells. In other words, if we can reprogram the genome, we can reprogram cells. You can already start thinking of the applications, right? We can utilize this not only to study, but even to control and perhaps help with the recovery of neurodevelopmental diseases like schizophrenia, which is the disease that uh, the group at Buffalo is focused on, or neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Of course, if you sell this technology, not to NSF, but to DARPA, <laughs> they care about many things, but they also care about brain function augmentation. So actually we can utilize that tool. And let's not forget, we are doing this wirelessly thanks to the architecture we developed with Sassy and Steve. And we're doing this one cell at a time. So really we can go and pinpoint neurons. Okay, this is actually what we presented in, in this paper one year ago, in which we present an overview. And part of the talk today is actually an evolution of what we presented in this paper, which we talk about optogenomic interfaces. Let's move on about optogenetic. It's great to control calcium ions, but if now you give me a tool that allows me to control pretty much everything in a cell. Well, that's what we like. And that's what we call optogenomics, the use of light to control the genome. At the end of the day, I could spend an entire hour explaining this slide, but the key idea here is that all the cells in your body have the same DNA. Fine. Different cells in your body interpret or execute different fractions of the DNA. What we're doing here with light is actually not to add or remove DNA, which we could, that's what we do when we transfect with channel rhodopsins, but we are actually using light to trigger different genes. Genes maybe that are not expressed in that type of cell or that were expressed, but now because of a neurodegenerative disease are not being expressed anymore. So that's the key idea. And you can think of reprogramming neurons or cells in the way same you reprogram your computer. Okay, so couple of questions. Okay, so right now you showed us that with this blue light, you're controlling the calcium ions and you're controlling both, at the very least, the two genes that you were looking for. Is there any way that we can just control one gene so we make sure we don't mess up anything else? And if yes, what, she, what gene should we be targeting? So for question one, the answer is uh, yes. Actually, if we want to increase the specificity of our trigger, of our nanocontroller, there are things that we can take advantage of. And one of them, it's this light control molecular toggle switch, which is based in, in a couple of, of proteins, the 5B plant phytochondron B and the PIF6. And the key idea is the following. Let's look at this figure here on the right. So you have that, you have, this at the end of the day are two proteins that when you shine them with uh, some far red light, 750 nanometers, it's almost infrared, but it's still 
I mean, barely visible, but you can see it. So far right light, and when you shine light, these two proteins go together. When you shine slightly different light, 650 nanometers, so this is bright light, actually these two proteins separate. And what can we do? Well, if to these two proteins, we connect two other set of proteins that such that, for example, the TETR and the VP16, what happens? If we with light connect these two proteins, these two proteins will be connected too. And this TETR, it's a protein that when it finds VP16, triggers whatever it's connected to. And for example, we can connect a, a, a fluorescent particle. So we can actually, the first experiment that we did in the lab was to see what happens with a cherry color reporter, red reporter, what happens when you play with this uh, switch, okay? Or we could connect the trigger for a specific gene. So we could actually make with light trigger one gene, the gene that we are targeting by connecting to, to TED-R. The good news here is different. We can target one gene at a time. And again, as an engineer, I didn't care much, but we are in a team and we try to understand everything. Actually, this red light is much less uh, harm, harmful for the cells. So actually this was good. Which gene to target then? What do I connect here? What do I connect to this protein? Well, we could target many things, but given that uh, our group in collaboration with Michal has been, uh, Michal's group mainly, has been working on FGFR1, we said, let's target this gene. What is FGFR1? Well, FGFR1 is a specific gene, which is called the fibroblast growth factor receptor one. And it involves, or it's related, it's, it's the key gene in the integrative nuclear signaling module. Or in other words, this is what is known as a master regulatory gene. A gene that on its turns will control multiple genes. A gene that, if you have the time, go through this paper by Michal, uh, in which he explains how the disruption of, I mean, this gene plays a key role in the process of cell development. So if we disrupt this gene, we can actually prevent or, you know, I mean, we can actually evolve into different type of living system. In other words, this is the gene, for example, that is activated when we have stem cells and we want them to become a specific type of cell. Remember, at the beginning, we, we were nothing but a bunch of stem cells. Those stem cells then become different type of cells, for example, neuron, by triggering the right piece of code. FGFR1 is the gene that helps us select that piece of code that will become. So in other words, for example, by controlling FGFR1, we can have neurons or we can have stem cells. So in, in our third experiment, what we have been doing, it's very similar to before. So we have our cells, we have them in chambers, we'll have controlled chambers, we'll have transfected chambers. And what we do here now is that we inject the plasmid in the cells that will encode this switch, okay? And then what we do is we add to this switch the NGFR1, the, the, the trigger for the gene that we care about, and as always, a green fluorescent protein to make sure that we see what's going on. And then we have control samples in which instead of adding the trigger for our gene, we're just triggering, uh, we're just tri triggering fluorescence. Fine. What we do here, again, we, we actually, this is a slower process. We're trying to trigger a, a genetic process, a genomic process. So we, we excite the neurons, we keep them in the dark for 20 hours, then we actually have 15 hours recovery. And then we go and look at, the, at what's happening. 
And what do we see in that case? This is what you see in this figure. We see that our neurons that now has been, have been transfected with this molecular toggle switch and with the trigger of a specific gene can actually, I mean, we see big differences. Here is the culture, the cell culture, when we don't shine light to it, and we see that FGFR1, it's not general expressed. We know if it can be because we're looking at green light, whereas, I mean, there is FGFR1, there is green light, but look at what happens when we have triggered this switch and we have forced FGFR1 to express, then we see these shiny uh, green points and this is telling us that FGFR1, the gene is acting and it's happening and we can just see it not only with light, but it, we can even see it here. We had neuroprogenitor cells, so pluripotent stem cells that could become neurons. We are forcing them to start shaping themselves into neurons. Look at how different is this. This is an actual micrograph from this. Here we're seeing how we are actually through light controlling cells to become neurons. Or in other words, we are wirelessly through, through light controlling one of the most basic functions of cells. Well, where do you take this? This is, you know, your problem. I was going to say, you know, this is the opportunity, right? And as everything, we can take this in different ways. So look, we started today talking about nanotechnologies, how we can make these tiny devices to sense and perhaps more interestingly, to actuate at the nanoscale. And the nanoscale is the same scale where biology occurs and where biology can be defined. By going through optics, we're able to interface nano and biosystems with unprecedented spatial and temporal resolutions. So we are closing the gap between the digital world and the biological realm. And look, uh, understanding what we can do is the first step trying to fix what biology, it's not helping us that much. For example, trying to recover from a neurodevelopmental or a neurodegenerative disease should be a step in the way, not the last step. And now just to trigger perhaps discussion, I would say that many of, of us, you know, or many, many people think that biology is the last stage, right? Trying to make a system that looks biological or that fixes biology is great. Well, I think that biology is just one stop, but it's not the end destination. We actually have technologies with which we can enhance what biology can do. So with that, uh, maybe a little bit crazy comment, uh, I'm done. Thank you very much for staying. Thank you very much, Joseph. Um, we have a couple of questions here. If anyone else has any to add, please send them into the chat. Uh, one question is, how large would the circuitry have to be to power the laser or antenna to produce light? Very good question. So indeed, so you're, you're telling us that the lasers are very small and that everything else will fit? Well, I mean, let's think in the following way. Let me actually go back to the figure with the architecture. The key idea here is the following. The laser, this is actually the total device. And we're thinking of a device that might have to be, you know, tens to hundreds of micrometers, which is starting to become large. Uh, just full disclosure, DARPA explicitly asked for uh, self-assembling technologies because they know that we will not be able to, to get this where we need to. But we're talking about tens to hundreds of micrometers. The laser is a large component here. The circuitry itself will be very limited, so we will not have much. At this point, we'll pretty much will have 
power transduction between our energy source and our light pumped uh, system. The idea here, however, is that how do we get that energy? Well, if you look at this device, it kind of looks like a tiny brush. This, this brush here is in fact an array of zinc oxide nanowires, or actually there are a couple of technologies that could be utilized to make piezoelectric generators. So generators that from vibrations, from motion, will create electrical energy. And in fact, some of this work, we did it uh, again in collaboration with SASE as well as um, Mike uh, at TSSG. Uh, and the idea was to understand how, how small can we make this and still be able to capture enough light, uh, enough acoustic signals and therefore have enough power to operate this. The miniaturization of the entire device is challenging, but we're in a point that we can fit billions of transistors in, 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 a, one, in a 10 by 10 micrometer die. So I'm confident that we can fit those two here. But we have not demonstrated the integrated system with a processor and energy harvester. Perfect. Uh, another question here is, since neurons are always dying and being replaced, what happens when the engineered neurons die? Well, they will, yeah, they may die too. Uh, then what we may want to do is, first of all, so the, the neurons that are engineered, they are transpected. So if what will happen, I mean, we can take this, I can take these questions in two ways. One of it is like, okay, what do we do? Well, one option is we engineer more. The other option is that we use a stem cell treatment, which is, you know, we inject stem cells and we then force them to become neurons. So they hopefully readapt themselves to their environment. Uh, one of the things that is interesting is that, look, if you, so one of the, the way we got the neurons in the lab is the following. We start from skin cells from different people, different patients, in fact, schizophrenic patients many times. And from those skin cells, what we do is we induce them to be pluripotent, meaning kind of stem cells, and then we induce them to become neurons, right? So that's the process. So could we repurpose cells? Uh, yes, we could, we could have done that. Uh, again, in vivo, this is crazy. And I know I told you that today I was talking about the crazy work of the lab, um, but this could be that. The other thing is the following. Uh, which is like we can actually, when you have those neurons in a, those cells in a, in a dish, actually it's very interesting because neurons tend to self-assembly into networks. And in fact, there is a huge field in which uh, Dr. Stachowiak works very actively, which is on the idea of recreating mini brains. I call them mini brains. They are in fact officially called cerebral organoids. In other words, when you have neurons in a dish and you culture them in the proper way, it will start growing, growing, and they will eventually become 3D structures, 3D structures that internally resemble the human cortex. That's really exciting. And actually, that's one of the things we're looking at right now. We're trying to map uh, how does this cerebral organoid look like? What are the processes in those cerebral organoids? Uh, and how can we control that? So again, yeah, neurons will die, that's for sure. Uh, we can, I mean, of course, while they are growing and, and doing work fine, we may need more. That's true. Great, thank you, Joseph. And I have another question here. It's kind of a, a three-pronged question. Um, what do you mean by regulate and how is regulation controlled? And then what is the software footprint? Okay, so let's just start by regulation. So regulation means the process by which your, your cell stops being uh, a stem cell or an induced pluripotent stem cells and, and becomes an actual neuron. That's the process of regulation. So Remember, at the beginning, a stem cell, think of, it as a, think of it as a computer, 
in which we just start the operating system. Your computer is running, but it's just running the operating system. So your cell is not dying. That's a stem cell. Then the process of regulation is the process by which we double click on the application that we want to, to launch. Or is it your cell phone? You tap on the application that you want to launch. You are going to become a neuron. Fine. Then that triggers an entire process. And one of the very interesting things, and again, this is a great opportunity for people in networking, which is traditionally people thought that the genome was a, what can I say, a two-dimensional network in what sense that this gene is connected to this gene and to that gene, neighboring. What, what several groups have been showing is that actually the genome is a three-dimensional network with, you know, it was, there are very few, very, very few and very, very recent papers discussing how you trigger one gene and you thought that you knew which ones were going to react because of that, which other pairing genes were going to react. And then you realize that there are actually other genes that you didn't expect were also reacting. So you see this three-dimensional network of networks in the genome, which is great. Okay, that's regulation. Uh, which was the second uh, part of it, sorry? And the second part was, what is the software footprint? Software footprint, okay. How do we think of that? I guess that the question here is that, how much are we adding to the neuron to make this? So in other words, how, how many bits do the plasmids that we are adding to the neurons add? Well, we're talking about the structures that are extremely simple. So in, instead of having, I mean, out of the millions of, 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 of genes, we are actually just, I mean, we are, we are adding a very tiny piece of code. So the code on the neuron is very small. We, we are at the end of the day, controlling one element in the neuron. The footprint on the devices that we'll control here, and that, that connects to the previous question, which is how, what will happen with the electronics of the device? Well, we will have to also simplify that a lot. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're trying to shift all the complexity from being in the, in the actual neuron or in the actual nano device to have it in what would be the external device. But that's actually a very reasonable, very good question. Thank you. And I have uh, one more here. Um, has, has he measured how far in the cell or neurons network the transfect travels? Okay. The transfection, okay. Full disclosure. So what we are doing right now in our culture, it's we transfect all the neurons. Okay. And, and there are different techniques for transfection. Uh, this is what uh, my colleague Michal does or his in his group, like, you know, when you come at a communication lab, one of the very first things that you learn how to do is how to use, you know, a software-defined radio or how to use an oscilloscope, a single generator. In Michal's lab, one of the first things that they will ask the students is learn how to culture cells and learn different transfection methods. So the idea is the following. In our system, we are transfecting all the cells, which is what people usually do. Because you cannot really know. It's very difficult to make sure that only one cell is transfected. What we are doing instead is then through light, make sure we only trigger whatever we have transfected in one or two or few cells. So all the cells have been added, this piece of code, but only the ones we care are illuminated. That's why I need those optical arrays. That's why I need that precise illumination. Would it be nice if I could just transfect some of the cells well, you could think of that as some sort of targeted drug delivery, targeting some plasmid injection. That would be very exciting. Actually, we didn't think of that. That's a good comment. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Innovation Insight podcast. 
Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast streaming services. For more information on the Walton Institute, check out our website at www.waltoninstitute.ie and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Bye for now.